0: Hello and welcome to another episode of I'll Be There For You, a show about pop culture and coping. I'm your host slash producer slash snack mom, Lindsay Ennett, and on each episode I bring in a funny, talented, interesting, usually from Chicago person to talk about a piece or two of pop culture that got them through a difficult time in their lives why am I doing this? There are so many pop culture podcasts. You probably have your faves for your commute. I love talking to people about the things they love and about the ways they practice uh, caring for themselves and the world around them when everything is literally on fire and terrible. My awesome guest today is John Sunholm. He is a writer, comedian, storyteller, bon vivant. You can find <laughs> him on most internet places at, at, at John the Craptist. Yes. Yes john with an h john with an h very important. important who's john with an n even
1: i mean jonathan's usually which i'm not you're a john a not a jonathan OG, yeah pure and simple john
0: any other shows or anything coming up that i forgot
1: no nothing coming up um i'm just kind of working on various writing projects and stuff
0: awesome trying to be funny
1: on the internet
0: you are funny on the internet well thanks
1: So are you. Thank you.
0: Oh my God. (laughs) So what are we talking about today, John?
1: Well, we're going to talk about Madonna and then maybe if we have time, we'll also talk about housewives.
0: I would love to talk about both of those things. When we were messaging back and forth uh, prepping for this episode, you specifically brought up Madonna. Can you take us back to your first encounter with the Cone Broad one? (laughs)
1: Yeah, so I'm 40, so my first encounter with her was pre bra, if you can believe it. But <clears throat> I was pretty young. I was like six or seven. I think I was like a kindergartner. And didn't really have any pop culture or awareness or anything, you know. And we were at my grandmother's house, and my cousins lived across the street, so I'd go over there and hang out with them. Mike and Kim, and Mike was like probably 10, and Kim was like 14. So they were prime mtv age they were like your cool older cousins they were my cool older cousins right and i like idolized them so i was at their house and mike and i were playing gi joe's kim was in the next room watching tv and the like opening drum beat of what i now know was material girl came out of the tv and mike like dropped everything and like ran out of the room was like oh my god she's on and i was like what is going on and i followed him and the material girl video was on. And I was like, I mean, it was like being hit by lightning. <laughs> I was like, who is this? What am I looking at? This is the most, I had never even seen a music video before. Like I had no concept of what I was looking
0: at. Who's that girl literally?
1: Indeed. Indeed. And um, I was just, I just remember like kneeling on the hardwood floor, like staring at the TV and just being like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And then I went back over to my grandmother's house where my mom was and like little kids do. I was like, Mom, you won't believe this thing. I saw on the TV. There was this girl. It's just in this pink dress. And she was singing this song. And blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I have that record at home. We can listen to it at home. And I was like, what? And i um, pretty sure she regretted that for the rest of my life because I was like instantly obsessed. And it was all I would talk about for the entirety of my childhood until I was 12 years old. Um, but yeah, so that was my intro to The Queen of Pop
0: been exposed to the material girl video to me about how your relationship with Madonna grew from there
1: well so I mean not to bring the mood down or whatever but I had a very difficult upbringing I was raised by my mom my mom was a single mom and my they, she and my dad split up right before I was born so I never lived with my dad um, but both environments were very difficult my brother is 13 years older than me And he was also very unstable. And so he was a negative presence in the home as well. And it was just a very difficult place to grow up. And I think mainly because my mother was overwhelmed by everything on her plate. At that time, the sort of prevailing wisdom was, ah, little kids are resilient. You don't have to worry about them. So I was sort of half cast aside, half nobody had any patience for my... (laughs) personality or whatever so it was often a scary place to be and so it wasn't just madonna it was kind of anything creative or or artistic i just sort of dove headfirst into from as early as i can remember um my mom was one of those moms that always had records playing all the time so there was always music in our house and she was a huge lover of movies and tv and, and all of that so It was just sort of always going in in our house and just sort of became my obsession because it was an escape from what was going on in the house. I mean, you know, like cliche movie type things of like my mom and my brother screaming at each other in the background while I'm like watching Wonder Woman on TV pretending it's not happening. Like that very cliche thing. That was kind of what Madonna started as for me is it was just sort of an escape from everything. And the older I got, the more it started to become clear to everybody that I was probably a little gay boy, and that was very much not okay with everybody. So the more my personality started to develop, the more I was sort of punished oftentimes for you know, being who I was and being into the things that I liked and being kind of effeminate and whatever. And so then it started taking on a different contour, I think, when that started happening. Um, and I, you know, I don't think I could have verbalized this at the time I was a child, but I definitely clocked the whole like self-acceptance, self-respect, defiantly being yourself, um, you know, and, and the, the sort of inclusion, I guess, of queer people in her work. And what I think I really sort of picked up on that in a very childlike way. And so, I mean, what I'm long-windedly getting at, I guess, is that she was just sort of my respite and someone I felt like was in my corner and it was a place I could go where I was accepted and people would leave me alone and be nice to me and I could watch her dance with foobie tassels and open your heart video or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Pretend my life wasn't happening, basically. Yeah.
0: First of all, I'm sorry and horrified that... Um, Thank you. Yeah. I survived. And... You're and you're dope as hell. Um, Thank you. The clocking the the self acceptance and having her as a as a queer Polaris of sorts. Right, right. I think that's I think that's super interesting. Like that, we as as queer people find those cultural icons, even those who may not be queer themselves, and who certainly we can get into the discourse around Madonna. Um, right and boy is there ever yes but i can where i mean for me it was the indigo girls because of course it was okay. fucking indigo Fair girls um <laughs> where it's which is like
1: similarly yes, yeah like, as me. <laughs> it's like, absolutely <laughs> it's like the, the queer woman version.
0: it absolutely <laughs> is it was the first there was the first uh cd i bought with my own money it was an indigo girls double live All album right. it's like how my parents did not clock that when I was in sixth grade uh, is beyond me. But where we have these cultural moments and it's like, you can't quite articulate it yet, Mm -hmm. but it's like, I feel a tacit acceptance from this famous person singing on the TV.
1: And, and I mean, I think, the way I put it now is like, at this point, I've been a fan of hers for so long that it's almost like a family member. So I have a very complicated relationship with her. And there are a lot of things I would like to sit her down and <laughs> have a discussion about because, you know, it's like a problematic fave thing in a lot of ways. But in amongst a lot of the very valid criticism of her, I think this is a thing that gets lost, that there is an entire generation of gay men who have this similar connection to her. There's... You know, there was a, a, a thread on Twitter a couple months ago where someone was like, tell me the first queer people you ever saw represented in media. And there were, it was more than just me that was a gay person of a certain age who was like the fucking dancers in Truth or Dare. Like that was literally, I had never seen a gay person in my life until I watched Truth or Dare and saw all of those gay male dancers being very gay. And you know, like very provocative, very sexual, and I, you know, it like changed my life. You know,
0: for the youths listening, all five of you that maybe <laughs> um, may not be familiar with the the truth or, with truth or dare, um, and you uh, just describe that a little bit. So,
1: truth or dare, um, it's actually a really kind of important piece of. It. History, to be honest, but it was it was a tour documentary about Madonna's Blonde Ambition Tour, which was when the cone bra version of Madonna came into came into the world. And it is partly just a tour documentary, but it also is often credited as being one of the foundations of reality television because it was very sensationalistic. A lot of it is very performative. It's certainly marketed as being a straight up documentary, and you're seeing the real Madonna. And there there are moments where that is true, but it's madonna she's obviously playing to the cameras most of the time and you're seeing what she wants you to see which is kind of
0: i mean all reality tv and documentary is a little bit manipulative
1: absolutely and it was very controversial at the time the tour itself was very controversial at the time um you know, she was almost arrested for obscenity in Canada. So it was a big deal in nineteen ninety one.
0: How is how do you how has your relationship with Madonna and her music changed over time through her various reinventions, mm-hmm. through different public perceptions of her as you've grown just into adulthood and into, you know, an evolving relationship with your own identity? Right.
1: Well, I mean the first kind of big shift is kind of what I was just talking about a moment ago, which is like when I got to sort of the tween years, and you start recognizing that, oh, I think there's something different about me. And, you know, I grew up, I think it was both a function of the time and where I grew up, which was suburban Detroit, much like Madonna herself. I can't speak to what Detroit is like now, but back then it was a very sort of provincial place, very... Not politically conservative, but a very conservative place. A person like me certainly did not fit in. It was the kind of place that a person like me or an artistic person in general, you were kind of plotting your escape from the minute you sort of gained consciousness.
0: Ironically, it's now being gentrified by those same people. It is by those same
1: people, I know. It's just bizarre to me. Every time I hear about it or go back, I'm like, wow, this is completely different than when I grew up. But so as I got older and I started learning a little bit more about her sort of backstory, it, it became sort of like, oh, okay, this is a thing I could do. This is a thing she did. She's from the town my dad lives in and she had to get out of here. And she went to the big city and made a big thing out of her life. Like that was a very sort of like, you know, I I don't know what word I need, but something I could kind of cling to until I could get the fuck out of this place, you know?
0: It made it real that it was impossible. Yes, it It
1: made it real and plausible. Of course, we're so saturated in media nowadays that I think everybody kind of knows how the sausage gets made when they watch a movie or a TV show or a music video or whatever. But back then, it was a very closed system and it wasn't like that. So I never really had any concept of how that happened.
0: Nowadays, there would be Twitter conspiracy theories about how
1: Madonna is an industry plant. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So to kind of learn how the sausage was made in her case, I was like, oh, okay. So that's what you do. You get out of here and you go do something else. Another big thing is, and this is another thing she doesn't get enough credit for, when AIDS happened, there were two people that were willing to talk about it. And it was Elizabeth Taylor and Madonna. They were the only famous people who would speak up and speak out for queer people who were being killed by this thing. And again, I was too young to, you know, really verbalize it and really intellectualize it, but that also kind of settled into my skin at some point. And I sort of got to a place where I was like, I have some sort of sense that sort of there, but for the grace of God, go I as far as all these people that are constantly dying, that really made an impression on me. When her like a prayer album came out, it had a leaflet inside that was about how to prevent AIDS and how to use a condom and stuff like that. And I was like, Oh wow. You know, like, so that was sort of the big thing. And then sort of, over time, my family became far more religious and oh. into, like, born-again Christian evangelical stuff, and I was...
0: So, wait, this was right around the, like, a prayer video? So,
1: this or... was, like, around the erotica era, which oh, right shit. after, like, a prayer. So, I got through the whole, like, a prayer thing, the blonde ambition thing. That was, like, the height of my... Madonna, etc.
0: Which I'm sure your evangelical Christian family loved the Like a Prayer video. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah not so much. Not so much. My mom, though, before, before we, like, went down this evangelical path, my mom definitely did not approve. But, like, my mom liked Madonna, first of all. I mean, that was kind of another facet of my fandom is that it was a connection with my mother because we both liked her. And she just sort of like, eh, whatever, it's just music, it's just videos and kind of looked the other way. But after the whole, like, a prayer controversy, I mean, she got far more, what at that time would have been called a scene certainly wouldn't be now, but, and that kind of coincided with this delve into evangelicalism. So I wasn't forced to sort of give up my fandom, but I I would say I was, like, coerced. I got rid of all my tapes and CDs and all my posters and memorabilia crap that I'd bought at Spencer Gifts and Mall and got rid of all that for Jesus and kind of put her away for several years. And it wasn't until I was in college that um, I sort of made my way back, which was interesting because that happened at a really, my freshman year of college was a really awful point in my life. It's when, so I have complex PTSD and an anxiety disorder and bipolar two disorder. And that's when all of that really started to sort of manifest And then on top of that, my relationship with my mother was very codependent. So I was just not in any way, shape, or form ready to be away from the home. And it was just a horrible, horrible year. And during that year is when Madonna's Ray of Light album came out, which was a paradigm shift in her persona and her work in the kinds of things that she talked about in her work. And it was when she got into yoga and Kabbalah, it was all very spiritual earth mother, or whatever.
0: I was about to ask, this is like Kabbalah, Madonna. Yes,
1: exactly. Right? Yeah. And I, I mean, I was, it was my freshman year of college. I was sitting doing my homework on my roommate's computer and I had MTV on and they were like, you know, coming up, we have a new video from Madonna. And I was like, oh, this will be, this will be something. Like I still have this like attitude. Like this is pretty trash <laughs> that I have been assigned by religion or whatever.
0: This, and, has been, this is also post Evita Madonna. This is post Evita
1: Madonna. Yep. Yep. Right after that, she just had the, her baby, her first child. And, and so I was prepared to just hate whatever MTV was about to put on and it was the Frozen video and I was like this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen like what happened you know she's really transformed herself and so that album really became a comfort to me because it was certainly not about the same things I was going through but it was generally about sort of being at a point in your life where you're sort of questioning everything and questioning who you are questioning who you used to be And I was starting to kind of undergo the process of figuring out I didn't actually believe in any of the religion that had been foisted on me. So it was was sort of an overlap that was very, very comforting. And it was kind of like coming back to an old friend. And my mom really liked the album, too. So it was something of a return to form for my mom and I, because we had this thing to bond over again. Like, I remember, like, I came home one weekend from college, and she was cleaning the house to the Ray of Light album and I was like, and we're back. And then, you know, as I've gotten older and I've gotten more comfortable with myself, particularly five, six years ago, I had a major mental breakdown, which is why I moved here to Chicago. Um, And I've had a lot of therapy and kind of undergone a lot of the kind of getting to know my true self stuff that I wasn't allowed to do in the religious environment that I was raised in. And interestingly, as I've gone through that process, my fandom with Madonna has sort of waned because I think I just don't need the security blanket as much anymore, which is what she was to me my entire life until I was like 35 years old. Even when I got in other things, like when something bad happened, like let me go on YouTube and watch some Madonna concerts and just pretend the world doesn't exist. But it it's still something that I sort of occasionally come back to for nostalgic reasons or. Like I said, if I've just had a bad day, I am like, yeah, let me go lay in my bed and watch The Confessions on a Dance Floor tour. Can we
0: can we briefly unpack how underrated and fucking slept on Confessions of a Dance Floor is? It's so good. It's so good. Hung Up is my favorite Madonna song. And
1: that's a worthy winner. It's so good, mostly because it's basically an ABBA song. It is basically an ABBA song. It's true. That concert, I am just telling you, is like it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen
0: have you seen her live
1: i have i've seen her probably five or six times wow but all in the more modern era i never saw her like kind of in the heyday Mm -hmm. my mom tried to get me tickets to the who's that girl tour in 1987 oh my gosh for my birthday
0: but it sold out
1: in like 15 minutes. And she got to the... Remember when you'd have to go to Ticketmaster in the basement of the fancy department store? Yeah. So in Detroit it was Hudson's. So she got to Hudson's to the Ticketmaster. Oh there. no! And they were all on already. And then Blonde Ambition was too dirty. I wasn't allowed to go. Girly Show was too dirty. I wasn't allowed to go. And then in 2001 she toured for the Ray of Light album and the music album. And by then I was an adult so I got
0: to go. Now you're in your 40s and 40s. at a moved out, you know, you've lived in Chicago for a few years, you're going to therapy, doing all this, kind of, the work. Mm -hmm. What is your relationship to this music and this artist like for you
1: now? A lot of it is honestly about marking time, which is kind of an interesting thing that I've only realized recently, that I sort of, without even realizing it, kind of mark the time of my life through... Madonna songs or Madonna albums or Madonna concerts because until fairly recently in my life I mean I was just steeped in her all the time and so sometimes I revisit certain things I mean one of the things that is kind of a big feature of my life now is kind of retracing steps through my life because the way I was raised and also part of what cultic religion does to you which I would consider evangelical Christianity a cult and that's falling going to piss some people off but
0: Probably not the people that actually listen. Okay, good. Okay, good.
1: Is that you sort of lose your ability to even really know your own self and know your own thoughts, and that's also a neurological effect of PTSD. Is you sort of lose your capacity for even knowing what you yourself think and feel.
0: Trauma sometimes makes you gaslight yourself. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And so. The smell of bacon reminds me reminds you of your grandmother who used to make breakfast when you were a child. Like it's sort of like that sense memory thing almost of like mm-hmm. now that I'm in a very different place mentally, I'll hear a certain Madonna song and be like, oh my God, this is what was actually happening in my life and this is how I actually felt and this is what I thought at the time and my God, how wrong I was. And So it can kind of trigger memories like that, which is an interesting and sometimes difficult experience. And then there's also uh, just a sort of a certain nostalgia factor every now and then. I'm like, you know, I really want to sit down and listen to that first album and remember being a little six-year-old gay boy dancing in the living room while my mother wasn't watching type of thing.
0: Sometimes you just want to listen to Borderline, and that's Sometimes okay. Sometimes just to
1: Borderline. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, now I have a little bit more of a, I guess, sort of a, intellectual approach to her or whatever like i'm very intrigued by her now i'm intrigued by how her brain works even when she does things and i'm like you need some people in your life to tell you no
0: (laughs) do you think anyone has told her no in the past 40 years
1: uh, i mean my guess is no (laughs) but like that's kind of the beauty of her though honestly like it doesn't always work out great, but she is a person who does whatever the hell she wants in her work, and a person like whatever. And there's something very inspiring about that to a person like me who, because of the way I grew up, I'm constantly like, what if I do this and everyone thinks it's stupid? What if I do this and no one gets it? What if I do this and someone else does it better? Like, it's very inspiring to just see this person who's like, I don't know, I'm just going to do this thing and it may or may not work. Like, you know, and she gets paid a million dollars to do it. So... It's very freeing in a way.
0: It's wild that that shit can sometimes be super inspiring, like in the case of Madonna, and sometimes horrifying, like in the case of the big wet president.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, so this is a great book for anybody who has any kind of like mental health or life issues. My therapist made me read this book called Mindsets by this psychologist, I think from Harvard, who did all this research, and she's basically come up with this theory that everyone has one of two basic mindsets, growth or fixed. And so growth is all about sort of everything that happens to you is an opportunity for learning. There's not necessarily anything bad or good that happens. There's just things that happen. And what you do with it is kind of what matters. And then the fixed mindset is very much like, why is this stuff happening to me? Why are bad things happening to me? I failed, so I'm embarrassed. So I'm just not going to do it anymore. People who have been traumatized are often... Often end up with a fixed mindset and it stymies them. This is why my therapist made me read this book. So, one of the passages in the book is she says, like, Think about the three people you admire most, dead or alive. And chances are, if you think about it, they had a growth mindset. And so, I did that one day and I'm like, Well, that's certainly true of Madonna. Like, she is in her lyrics and in interviews constantly talking about, I don't think about the past, I don't have regrets. I just want to move on to the next thing.
0: Usually in a fake British accent.
1: Usually in a fake British accent. Exactly. Um, which in itself you could say is a <laughs> it's, part it's of a growth mindset. a learning
0: opportunity
1: exactly. for sure. But what made me think of that I was going to say is that she also says in the book that a growth mindset can also be the source of incredible evil because it allows people like our glorious leader to sort of have no check on their ego or their ambitions. And so she like, she mentions Hitler. She's like, Hitler is a perfect example of a person who had a growth mindset that helped him accomplish extraordinary evil.
0: That certainly that lack of a, having any kind of value judgment for your actions or decisions is right. You know, I think there's a happy medium as someone who is, working on uh, seeing failure and success as a hard binary. Mm. Yeah. And like trying to get to that growth point, but also you fuck up sometimes mm-hmm. and it sucks. And, you know, you learn from it, but the, you know, learning doesn't mean I take zero accountability for this.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is a hard, I mean, that's a hard, I feel, at least it was for me, a hard thing to sort of, Understand or square because I mean, my life has been an absolute disaster until very recently, and now it kind of is again. And like before I got into therapy or whatever, I had a very sort of like all of these things have happened to me sort of view. And then I got into therapy and learned that they were really manifestations of mental illness and trauma and whatever. So then it's like the pendulum swung the other way, and it's like this is. None of this is my my fault, and I'm the victim here. And now I've had to kind of find a place of like, yes, that's true, but I also made choices through all of it, and I could have made different ones, and I need to own that and learn from it. So, it, it's I think very difficult to find that midpoint where like, yeah, some bad shit has happened to me, but I've also made choices, so I need to own the whole thing.
0: Totally. This seems like a perfect place to start talking about the real <laughs> Incredible transition. Oh, good job, John. Good oh my god! It's like who needs to learn from their choices more than Ramona oh Singer? Oh my god! Okay, so Ramota, the Ramona coaster, the Ramona coaster, uh, Turtle Time. uh Okay, so we're we're like take me on your Housewives journey. Okay,
1: so okay, so when Real Housewives of OC started, I lived in Los Angeles. And I was like, I don't need to watch that. I see those kind of people every day. The next one was, of course, New York. When that happened, I lived in New York City. And I was like, I don't need to watch this. I deal with those women every day. Then Atlanta started. And NeNe sort of became a thing because Anderson Cooper went on like Jay Lenin or something and was talking about NeNe. And I have an unnamed friend who is married to an executive at Bravo. And I was talking to him one day, and he's like, so you, you've you been watching Atlanta, right? Like, it's so up your alley. And I was like, no, I don't have cable, blah, blah, blah. He's like, what? He's like, give me your address. So he <laughs> burned me DVDs of all the, like, internal review copies of the whole season That's and mailed them to me. That's a very good friend. I was. It's, like, the most amazing thing anyone's ever done to me. And I spent, like, I went through the whole thing in, like, two days. I just remember, like, laying in my... Horrific apartment in New York City <laughs> in my bed. Just like, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever watched. So that was my gateway, The Housewives. Um, and then I have since come back around to New York in latter years after I left New York. Beverly Hills, I was heavy into Beverly Hills. Still am.
0: I've had some moments with Beverly Hills. Atlanta was also my gateway. I also watched New Jersey for a bit, but I find New Jersey too upsetting.
1: See, same with me. I watched it for several years. And then for me, the turning point was when Teresa and her bro- her brother's name is Joe, right? Yeah,
0: but also her husband's name is Joe. So uh, it's confusing. It's very
1: confusing. When Teresa and her brother, like got into, like, actual sibling feuds on the show and you're, like, watching an actual familiar relationship crumble in real time on television. I was like... You're watching her daughters get, like, traumatized oh in my real God. time. Oh, yeah. like, This is too much. Like, I could call my own brother and have this kind of drama in my life. I don't need to watch it on television. So
0: that was man. the turning point for me with New Jersey as well. Yeah. But... I actually have been – I'm really glad you brought this in because I've been re-watching New York right now. Okay. And my wife, who I would have this show on in the background, and she'd be like, this is awful, this is trash, why are you making me watch it? And she went from there to starting from the beginning and watching the entire series alone. What happened
1: with my roommate, who, like, he hates anything. So I live with a friend of mine from college I've known forever he hates anything to do with bravo and okay sidebar are you familiar with the podcast bitch sesh
0: I am familiar with bitch sesh
1: okay so I went down a bitch sesh rabbit hole four years ago I guess and they were constantly talking about New York and one of my best friends Melissa is also obsessed with housewives and New York is her favorite one and so I would constantly be like wait what are they talking about when they said this about Bethany or whatever and she was finally like, I'm not doing this with you anymore. Go on Hulu and watch the show. So I did. And the same thing happened to my roommate. He was like, do you have to watch this shit? And I was like, yes, I do. And about five episodes in, he was like, whatever, cue it up, let's do it. <laughs> and now he's a huge fan.
0: I think there's something, like, like I'd, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this. This isn't just, like, Lindsay raves about the Housewives Hour. Um, but <laughs> it can be, though. i for it. Yeah, it's my fucking show. Um, but... <laughs> I think why New York works is it's just, it's like the right amount of opulence. Yes. And there's that perfect balance between opulence and like people being disasters, but it not being like genuinely upsetting. Yes, exactly. It just, it hits those
1: right balance, I feel like. Because like, I mean, part of, I think, part of the allure of Atlanta is and this is not a criticism by any stretch of the imagination but like those women when that show started for the most part were they did not have what we call media training so they were just balls to the wall no holds barred and i think that they've even as they have become more savvy i think they've tried to maintain that sort of thing whereas part of where beverly hills i feel stumbles is you're dealing with women who have been in Hollywood for decades and they know exactly what they're doing. And so sometimes it's legitimately boring because they know enough to not reveal anything that's going to actually cause any problems. So you, there's not a lot of, like, not a lot of there there oftentimes. New York, I feel like, is the perfect midpoint between those two extremes. Yes. Where they definitely know what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. But, they like, know what they're, they're willing to just be getting messy and i love it i love it so much
0: oh my god i uh, i love new york do you as i mean we're both queer people we're you know in different you know places on the on the spectrum and right. within the culture are the housewives gay icons absolutely mm, i kind of think reality tv is an inherently queer venture
1: that's very interesting like i've never thought about that but i but that totally tracks
0: for how heteronormative a lot of it is but like think about like the re- like for a lot of people the first like gay people they saw on tv or in my case the first bi person i saw on tv was Anissa on the real world chicago oh my god
1: oh my god how wonderful i forgot about her that's a good one
0: yeah you're welcome huge you yeah yeah that's a cheetah gym now that house <laughs> know, like, you know that's the
1: the, the real world house. also fyi bethany currently lives in the first real world I did not know that. That building, anytime they do that establishing shot of that building, that is the building that the first real world.
0: Was oh my god! Style. Yeah. So, what do you? What is so special to you about about the housewives, about the franchise, and like no. I think what it, the purpose it serves in your life and in your media
1: diet? <sighs> okay. Well, <laughs> this is something that actually just popped in my head as you were saying that reality TV is kind of an inherently queer medium. I think that part of that, and I think the reason that sort of tracks is that I think, and this is definitely true of the Housewives, that so much reality TV in a way has a camp factor.
0: And it's so like rehearsed and put upon. It's, yes. you know, and it's like. It's
1: so often like bad on accident or good on accident. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like. Well, I, I think that might be part of...
0: Think about, like, Sue Hawk's snake and rat speech on Survivor. <laughs> like, that is campy villain it's shit. True. I mean, like, and, like, a gay dude won the first season of Survivor, right. lest we forget. That's true. But, yeah. um, but like, Sue Hawk, to me, is is the icon yeah. here. Like, the, just, oh, God, I just... It- <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, so, for me, The Housewives... I mean, they really do have a lot of layers for me. For me, it's like, I mean, as a gay man or or maybe a gay man of a certain age, like pretty ladies with too many tracks in their hair and way too much eyeshadow, I'm like, oh my God, give me four hours of it. Like, yes, I love everything you've done. You look ridiculous. Like Dorit on Beverly Hills. Dorit. Her interview look with that huge black headband and those fucking earrings that say Shaw and Nell on either side. Yes. And she looks like a a, a coked up aerobics instructor from 1987. The murder mystery party. um, Oh my God. The murder mystery party. All the reunion looks ever. Oh my God. Absolutely. Like their tits are up to their chin. They're wearing too much makeup. It's amazing. So there's like that factor to it. But also like... They have moments that are, like, actually real and emotional every now and then. That, like, kind of get you in your feels. And so it's sort of, I don't know, it sort of, like, covers a lot of bases. It checks it, a lot of boxes in what you checks want from TV. Yeah. It's glamorous. It's escapist. It's funny.
0: There's a dog funeral. There's
1: a dog funeral. <laughs> oh, my God. Sonia's dog funeral. Well, there was actually two dog funerals in New York. There was Sonia's and then there was um, Tinsley's this year.
0: I'm a little bit behind on season 11. Oh, no. but...
1: Spoiler alert. Tinsley's. Oh, no. <laughs> Tinsley's dog, Bambi, dies. Oh, no. And first, okay, I'm just going to be real. I don't care for Tinsley, so I'm just going to lay that out on the line. I... Tinsley has like a legit nervous breakdown over her dog dying, like okay. which I understand dogs dying is very sad.
0: Is this before or after? I've seen the circus episode. This is post-circus. I think the circus episode is the last one I saw where Tinsley also had a nervous breakdown. Also has a nervous breakdown. So yeah. take
1: that nervous breakdown and multiply it by 50. A of all, Tinsley is not wearing, in this scene, is wearing no makeup and does not have her hair done. So that should tell you right there. We have never not seen this woman in full beat, right? Yeah. And she's like...
0: Full face, beachy
1: waves. Exactly. Like, and she's like... Keening at the moon over this dog, like it's just—it's so over the top. So then she had the dog frozen, no, and, and thawed, no. So just like no. I think it. My memory is fuzzy, but I think it was so that Dale could come up from from Palm Beach and say goodbye to Mammy. Oh my god! So that they could have a funeral. So this dog was frozen, then thawed. Funeral. I thought I
0: couldn't get more extra than the dog than the first dog funeral. No, and they actually have
1: like a a thing on the show where they talk about they compare <laughs> like Sonia's comparatively staid dog funeral to Tinsley's completely bonkers <laughs> like
0: like Black Men. Widow. <laughs> yes, exactly. which I mean, look, Milo's funeral was more about. We all know it was more about Sonia than it was about Absolutely. Milo. Absolutely.
1: Everything was more about Sonia With Sonia. my One of my dear friends who now lives here and was my roommate in New York, we both lost our jobs at the same time and we're just sort of casting about for any work we could find. And she got an interview as a nanny and she's like, yeah, this woman's so weird. She's so weird. She signs all of her emails, Ms. Morgan. But then when you like actually talk to her, she insists that you call her Sonia, and I was like, "Katie, hey, what, <laughs> what, what? <laughs> Sonia Morgan?" Like, and she was like, "Yeah, that's her name." And I was like, "Do you know who that she's like, fucking housewife." She's like, "Oh, I don't watch that." I, like, I need you to understand what an opportunity this. Is. She didn't get. The she wasn't a part of the intern army. No, she was not. But she did interview to be Sonia's daughter's nanny incredible in 2014
0: oh my god which Sonia's daughter would not have needed a nanny by that point but like 15 or something yeah like they can they can look after themselves by that point <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah John, like, I never want this episode to end, but, like, we're coming close to an wow. hour. <laughs> yeah. Like, I would love to do, like, a second Housewives episode or something to,
1: like, you're ready. In all
0: my feelings you're ready. about this fucking show. One thing I love to uh, ask people on the show is, what is something you do outside of TV, outside of pop culture, to practice self or community care?
1: Well, this is a full cliche, but I'm a huge fan of meditation which I was very salty and eye-rolly about until... It just, it helps me so much. It helps me, like, keep my head clear so that I can be sort of cognizant of what thoughts are rolling around in there and get rid of the ones that are not helpful. So that's a big one for me. As far as the community, really bad about this, but I am actually on Tuesday going to like sit down and meet with someone to volunteer. That's awesome. Just something I've wanted to do for years. And I just, you know, how we creative types are, I just Mm -hmm. get so in my head and I'm like, I don't have time for that. I have to brood. And and also I'm not great at this, but I also just think like little things like just trying to be nice to people, like be nice to the lady in your way at the Starbucks milk bar where people take 15 minutes. I don't know what they're doing, putting their milk in their coffee that takes so long, but like being nice and friendly about stuff like that, or when people cut you off in traffic or whatever, like, I don't know. It's kind of hokey and woo woo, but I do think that stuff like that makes a difference, especially now when people are just cruelty is just the order of the day. Just making that a little extra effort. I think is helpful.
0: Absolutely. Is. I try to
1: remember that myself.
0: There are days we ought to, to try a little yeah, harder at that. It's, yeah. uh, it's It's important.
1: And I also think that if you're a person who's been through some stuff, I think talking about it is helpful to your community or whatever your sort of creative outlet is doing your art, talking about your stuff, writing your thing, being kind of open about your dark spots, I think is hugely impactful.
0: Jen, this has been an absolute pleasure. This has been a ride. (laughs) I loved having you
1: on the show. Where can.
0: Where can people find you online?
1: Uh, Twitter and Instagram at John the Craftist. Um J-O-H-N, the Craftist. Like, John the Baptist is the joke. A lot of people don't get that, which I think is very strange. That's wild. Like, that was, like, the first thing. That? John the Like, Craft- John the Baptist. <clears throat> so Twitter and Instagram under those. Also on Medium where I write essays and stuff. Some are sad, some are funny. And then I also have a blog called your gay uncle, where I also write stuff and yeah, your gay Your
0: John. thank you so much. Uh, this has been another episode of I'll be there for you. You can find the show every other Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Uh, we're on social media at IBTFYPod. You can also email I'll be there for you pod at gmail.com if you have feedback or questions, or you would like to be a guest like John and we can continue yeah. talking about the Real Housewives of New York and iconic disa- disaster bisexuals. <laughs> um, iconic disaster bisexual. Thank you so much for listening and uh, have a good weekend. Take care, everybody.